I also came to realize that after so many years of being on social media and millions upon millions of eyes on us, the people on the other end feel the same way. So they feel entitled to know. So I don't really hold it against them. Like I caught them stealing a pair of earrings out of the vault. The fact that every time something cool comes in and I look at it, I'm like, oh wow, I would love to have this watch for myself. That's how I know I haven't lost that love for watches. Welcome back to another episode of Gray Market Podcast, the unfiltered version. Uh, with me today, I have Mr. Roman Scharf to talk about last week's episode. Before we go on, I wanted to make sure that you subscribe, like, comment, let us know what you want to see, what you like, what you don't like, and what we should be doing to keep you watching and loving the show. Roman, how's it going? Oh, I can't complain. It's Friday. It's been a long week. It's Friday. It has been a long week. I went to two Phillies games back-to-back. They lost both games back-to-back. But I'm not a typical Philly fan. Last week's episode, you were in New York. You gave Peter a challenge to sell a couple watches. That went all right. Um, I actually, I mean, that, that whole thing was, it was cool. And the reason that I thought that is a good scene, because typically you have like people out there buying watches, negotiating price, trying to buy. Selling, I don't know if we've ever actually done a selling segment of on, well, on 47. Consider, considering the fact that, you know, not, not, in so, not so long ago, we were predominantly a wholesale company. We've sold probably to every Joe Schmo on 47th Street, right? And uh, beyond. Yeah. All over the world, really. All the hotspots in the Middle East, Asia, obviously United States, and even some European dealers, right? Uh, Japan. Like, we sold literally to dealers all over the world, which is great because... There's not a spot in this entire world where I, I can't walk into and literally pick up a million dollars worth of stuff just on my word. Now, with 47th Street, or wholesale market in general, right? Let me explain the dynamic of what happens when the market adjusts, whether it goes up or it goes down. On the way down, regardless of when it is, the first people that get to that point and understand that that's happening is going to be the secondary, right? So going back a year, the market took a dip last September, not the September, but the mm-hmm. September before, right? Uh, well, the secondary market realized that shit was going down probably, I want to say in July. Yeah. Those that have the luxury of having experience and understanding what's happening, you know, like ourselves, you know, we, we started preparing back in May. And by preparation, it's not like, oh my God, I'm going to sell everything. And it's just, you slow down on your buying, you're buying only steady pieces that markets don't really change much. And you get out of the hot stuff because it's the hot stuff that really took a dip. Daytona's, Royal Oaks, Nautilus's, Aquanauts, right? Couple, few richer meals. Yeah. Not the richer meal didn't really feel it that bad. Now, on the opposite end of things, when things are stabilized, right, and they're still going up, the secondary market catches up the last. It's the primary market that catches on first where guys are saying, okay, this watch I was, that was trading at 50 grand and was out of my, you know, that was priced out of, I'm now able to buy it for 30. I'm going to go ahead and buy it. The secondary market, it's almost like a combination of them being scared or still sitting on inventory, which they didn't get out of that's overpriced due to current market. But most of the times it's guys trying to milk the concept of, oh, the market is, uh, you know, bad so i want to i want to buy much much cheaper or they think that you may be in the position where you're one of those guys that's trying to dump out of some inventory that you can't sell that's overpriced and that's really the difference and that's why you know when peter goes out on 47th street you know that's not a place we would normally sell watches i get plenty of calls from but you could through the chats you don't physically need to visit need to physically be there i can put it up on the chats and and all those dealers that have they're in contact with all of our guys that they haven't they know what we have in stock i mean how many times a day Somebody sends me a link from my website, hey, what's my price on this, right? 10 to 20 times a day, right? So, and you know, there are times where clients will shop with another dealer, they'll literally send them a link from our website because that guy, his dealer, he'll call us and try to get a better price. So Ariel, we've done the Roman buys numerous times. You know, it's, it's already, it's got its own name. They're called Roman buys. That's Adrian, thank you. Yeah, I want to talk about the Roman buys and I want you to tell me I mean, give me an example of like the best Roman buy you've ever had. I mean, give me something, give me a reason, justify the Roman buys. It's a better margin item most of the time. And the reason for that is because stuff that sells slower, you tend to buy cheaper, it takes longer to sell, you make more money on it. And what that does is the justification I have is not on one single piece. The justification I have is on, I never wanted to be a Rolex dealer. And I learned that lesson actually a long time ago with my buddy OJ from Watch You Want. 
who later got bought out and Watchbox was created out of that, right? Where he put all of his eggs in one basket. He was the big badass Panerai guy on eBay. Then he did something really stupid, put up a very visible piece, which I believe belonged to John Mayer at the time. It was like the Panerai to have. This is when Panerai was like stupid mm-hmm. hot. And eBay just kicked him off, basically. And he was kind of lost. And that specialty into uh, Panerai really killed him. It took him a good two, three years to recover from that. Uh, early on, I, was, I had a specialty in Audemars Piguet, specifically limited edition offshores, kind of created the market on that, right? But even at that time, having a much smaller budget for inventory or much, a lot less money, you know, even that, I realized that I don't want that to be the bottleneck because trends change, things change, markets change, and then other people catch on, and they did. So really, for me, it's always been about diversifying the product. I want to be able to attract a crystal RM Turb client, but also want to attract a vintage or semi or neo vintage brigade client or longer client. I want to attract clients from all demographics. And you can answer that question in terms of our demographics, uh, both from the media and the things from the website traffic and the things from where people live, because certain areas in certain areas of the world, people wouldn't be caught dead wearing specific watches. For example, in in, uh, uh, Middle East, a lot of the Middle Eastern men will, cannot wear a gold watch due to their religious beliefs, right? So you have to be able to cater to that market as well. And because we really looked at from every end, every income level and every part of the world, diversity is key because then you become a Rolex dealer. Yeah. Guys that specialize in Rolexes today, how do you think their business yeah, is? I'm sure. Or guys that specifically did just the hot Royal Oaks, Nautilus's Omnibus, yeah. how is their business right now? Pretty I mean, dead. business overall right now, you know, for a lot of these... I guess I want to say younger and as far as like how long they've been in a business, you know, dealers has definitely become much, much more difficult. It's it's the guys that were selling to each other because that's yeah. what was happening. That's what that was part of the reason why the prices went up outside of the ridiculous influx of cash and from the government and PPP and all that other stuff. Right. But, the, but one of the big reasons was, hey, I can go buy this Rolex, flip it to the next guy. He's going to buy, give me a five hundred dollar profit. It's going to happen seven times. The price is going to go up and it's still not on anybody's wrist. There's one guy out there, shout out to Ricky Maduro from Watch 101, right? He's the, he's the kid, if you remember, we had him on yeah. our um, watches and whiskey, and he was an engineer by trade, worked for a bank, very similar story to mine, wanted to sell watches. I gave him one advice that he took and he ran with it. And the reason he did that, because he wasn't looking for quick money. Over this hype period, as his business grew, he ensured to hold out and not go for the quick flip and the quick money, but to sell stuff to retail clients. And result, in a short three years amount of time, he has a beautiful office in Texas. He's got his own clientele from which he can buy and sell to. And guess what? He's not stuck trying to call the guy next door to him in an office and say, hey, do you want to buy my Rolex for a couple of hundred dollars more? Can I flip this to you? And that's the end result. That's the bottom line. Give me the best um, example of a Roman buy that... The, the best story is the, the F.P. Jordan set mm. that we bought. It was a 38 millimeter set that we bought. It was, it was, it was the tribute to the 38 millimeter line. So when Jordan went from 38 millimeters into the 40 millimeter pieces, he made 20, uh, 38 sets, obviously. That makes sense. Uh, 38 millimeters, right? <laughs> uh, five of his best pieces, right? Turbiand, it was five, five different complications that were all unique in the sense that they were A, made out of stainless steel, which none of those uh, watches uh, were ever made in stainless steel. They had unique gold dials, which none of those watches came with gold dials. And uh, there were just some subtle differences in those watches where in the regular production prior to that, that has never been done. It was, it was a set that retailed originally for $328,000. At the time that it came out, you could probably even get a discount on it because this is pre jean going haywire. Mm-hmm. And the set was traveling around, traveling around, traveling around. And, and everybody has an opinion when it comes to a big ticket item. Speaking of watch box, oh, I think it's worth $1.4 spoke with somebody from Jorn. Oh, I think it's worth 1.1, 1.2. Had a big collector that came in here, you know, talking a big game, wanting to buy the set. Well, I think it's worth 1.3, 1.4. Every time people tell me that, I ask them, can you get me one? If you can buy one for 1.1, I will pay you 1.2 because I pay 1.6. And I said that to the guy from Jorn. I said that to Watchbox. They're like, oh, you're crazy. You got balls. But it's not about balls. It's common sense. I use logic of the following. If I have the exposure and I have the type of clientele that A, can afford a product at a certain price range, I mean, two million, three million, right? Sold plenty of those watches, plenty of times over, and we have the clientele. I.e., in the back of my head, I know who I'm going to offer that set to before I even pull the trigger, right? 
because it's not a set that you just you know blow up on the internet and it's something pretty rare. We, you know, we ended up selling the set for about two million. We ended up selling the set for two million dollars, and uh, you know everybody was not shocked when that happened. Those that told me, I think it's worth less. They're like, well, you know, it's the only one that's in the world. Because the problem, the biggest problem with that set was, even though 38 is a lot of sets, probably 36 of them were broken up into separate pieces. Because people with the bottom, exactly. they kept the one yeah. watch and they sold up the others. There was no actual box, and this was still NOS. So I tend to go for some of the biggest stuff. Another case in point, a while back, we had um, a white gold conjure, mm-hmm. which we ended up also selling for $2 million. And people were like, well, based on the yellow ones and based on this, I'm like, guys, there are three in the world. One is in a museum in Oman. One is with a collector, a Turkish collector in Germany who's got more money than Germany. And we have the only one in the world that's ever probably going to be available. That watch will never come back out on the market. I mean, this is watching the lines of like the auction we just discussed on watching this week. Mm-hmm. I forget the, the collector's name who's got like the sickest. Yeah, he's got the sickest collection, right? He, he, it's, it's one of those things where, again, sometimes you have to be willing to, be, to pay up and there are some pieces out there that are not, that are worth what one is willing to pay for them. And that case in point is me first, because that's what I'm willing to pay for it. Again, obviously there are limits, you know, that's not a $12 million set. Those are really good, clear cut examples. And when you're talking about the high end stuff, the rest of the stuff, I look for value, right? Because I always preach value in a lot of the unboxings and the episodes and stuff like that. And guess what? Nine out of 10 guys that are watching my unboxings and They'll have the Rolexes, the APs, the Richard Mills, the hot stuff that they see all over the Instagram. It goes in one ear, out the other. But there is a small percentage of people that under- actually understand and take it for what it is. Because normally, what, what do you hear me say? Hey, listen, this is a lot of value for your dollar, horologically, or historically, or design-wise. There's so many uh, facets to a watch besides, oh, this is a hype model. And I don't downplay hype. Why don't I downplay hype? Because that's become a clear-cut yeah. Number one priority in the watch, in the world of watches as of late, due to what what we're doing, social media, right, celebrities, and so on and so forth. But there are there's going to be that small percentage of guys that are going to look at a perpetual, an annual calendar paddock, perhaps an older one, which is a Roman buy, or an older Breguet, or Daniel Roth will say, "Oh my God, this represents a historical watchmaker. This represents a a horological innovation, or just horological value in turn." where I can buy a Pepsi GMT or an old annual calendar paddock, who's the Rolls Royce of all watches. Yeah. People still do listen to that. So the, the Roman buys, and it doesn't mean that Roman is not out there buying Royal Oaks for, right. Right? again, Roman doesn't do a whole lot of buying because I have, we have a procurement department. We have three, we have three people that do that. What's that? I said, does Roman talk about himself in the third person? Yes, yes of course he does. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we have an entire procurement department. There's a process, and believe it or not, I still run my purchases through Adrian and his team, because that's why, otherwise, why have a team? I'm going to have a team in charge of that. I'm not going to, you know, overstep that. Of course. It's like me telling you what to do in marketing. Have you ever gotten, like, burnt really badly on a Roman buy that, like, kind of soured your taste for doing it again? I mean, clearly not, because you still do them, but has there been a time when, like, you really... The only time I've, I've gotten burned on pieces is not on a monetary side of things, but on the time side of things, where even though, yes, we did sell that watch, we did sell at a hell of a margin, but it took forever or it set there forever. We couldn't make the projected margin on the watch. That I consider is as a loss. Because if you think about, you know, cost of money and time and so on and so forth, over time, a watch that you pay $10,000 for ends up costing you 10, five or 11 based on a lot of factors. Bank rates start there, right? Yeah. Especially today. Yep. So today you have to be a little bit more careful in that regard. Uh, a lot of our comments and a lot of like feedback that we get is always, you know, we're just in it for the money and, I mean, I'll be the first one to say it. I'm in it for the money. I, I don't have that, you know, I love watches. Absolutely. But not enough to like really give a shit about the horological side. Whereas, you know, people question your, I guess, commitment. And when, whenever I hear you speak about watches, you can kind of like, you could feel it. Like you love watches. Of course, the money's great. It helps, helps feed a bunch of families and, you know, live a certain lifestyle. How does working in something that you love so much, like, you know, affect you? So... Here's the problem is like, and it's not a problem. This is, here's how I know that the passion is still there. Almost every watch that comes in here, and I'm not talking about stuff that we get on a regular basis, your regular Rolex, of that's over and over and over. I'm talking about different things. It's like, I almost want to keep every watch that comes in here. Yeah. Right. And I made it a rule that I'm not going to keep any watches for many reasons we discussed this before, 
But the fact that every time something cool comes in and I look at it, I'm like, oh, wow, I would love to have this watch for myself. That's how I know I haven't lost that love for watches, right? On top of that, we are in a world where it's just in the last five years, the amount of innovation that took place from specifically independence mm-hmm. uh, in terms of horological inventions. We've seen in the last five years stuff in the, specifically the watchmaking part of that has never been done before. And watches and clocks go back hundreds of years, right? So for me, that's really cool to see from a te- technical perspective, let's call it that way. Then you're talking about aesthetics. Look at how watches have changed over the years. And then we get into innovation within the use of materials, right? Richard Mills, the Audemars Piguet is still pushing that with, I think they're still the leader in that aspect. And then we're talking about also history, right? When we, we, we got an Avacheron the other day, which was a remake of an original from the 40s or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's like, I pick up the watch and I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh wow, I remember reading, or I remember having a vintage version of this particular watch a little while back. And it's amazing that you can sit there and hold a piece of history. Or if you take a simple watch, regardless of what it is, let's say that has a Tirby on it, and you think back how long ago Breguet actually sat in a room lit by candles mm-hmm. and actually invented this and made it by hand. Or you go to independents that are now uh, Google Forze. They have, a, they have well, one watch that they make every year. It takes them a year to make it, but it's just completely handmade. Just think about the part. Think about the little screws. Just think about that. It's, it's, and this is today's day and age in technology, right? And then I like to see the general atmosphere in the market as far as, look, it's still a Swiss boys club, mm-hmm. right? The only other brand that's broken through that barrier that I can really think of today is probably Longa that's on the same level. And I don't know if they would have done that had they not been bought over by Richemont, let's say. And, and then I see Chinese... Uh, um, what is it, the watchmakers that are trying to break the barrier of made in China. Same with American Americans, you know, and it's it's British. It's happening. It's happening, and it's happening in a big way. So I always sort of, like, look forward, like, oh, wow, I wonder what's going to be in five years, you know? I mean, like, I remember seeing recently, like, a picture. It was, like, you know, for a thousand years or so, like, you know, people were riding horses. And then within the span of, like, 200 years, it went from horses to cars. It went from horses to the moon. Yes, pretty much. Like, that's how quickly things move when there's, like, some, you know, momentum. And I feel like right now there is probably a lot of momentum. Here's the beautiful thing about watches. They don't move at that speed. If you look at high-end watches, those handmade, yes, there's machinery that makes certain things right now, but at the end of the day, they're still hand-assembled. There's still a master watchmaker behind them. There's still innovation. The speed of... Innovation in the watch industry is about a hundred times, if not a thousand times slower than the speed of technology, let's say these yeah. iPhones or i yeah. iWatches or whatever. I mean, there's still a lot of appreciation for the art form. Like it is an art form, really. It's, it's a, a product. Skilled, it's a highly skilled trade. Yeah. Moving on, I wanted to talk about the Avi segment. I mean, I'm a big fan of Avi. We share a name. We, <laughs> we share a birthplace. Um, I had a question, and I don't know if you would know the answer, but I figure you could estimate. Like, Avi's store, like, we've spoken about it a lot because it's just, it's beautiful. The way it's designed, the way it's built out, it's just amazing. What do you think it costs to set something up like that? Uh, you're talking about his, uh, his office in New in York. In New York, yeah. In New York, not much. Not much, really? Not much. So the setup that you see there, obviously, I've seen, in the back behind the showroom, there's back office mm-hmm. space, just regular office space. It's nice, like, kind of like ours, decent, you know, good furniture, pretty, you know, clean, sure. modern. The space itself, you know, we always talked about um, opening up a location in Miami mm-hmm. or wherever, right? And the one thing me and you always discussed was like, for a million dollars, I can build a store that will rival some of the best boutiques out there, right? But I think the setup that you saw the showroom specifically between the showcases, the lighting, the way the wall paneling and all those things all set up, I think a couple of hundred grand is... Mm-hmm. You're all in. I mean, if that. It yeah. looks like really nicely crafted. Like it looks. It's yeah. it's listen. It's custom cabinet making. Obviously, the, so that's what the the most, majority of cost went into the cabinets. Was probably about a hundred thousand dollars. Nice furniture, wall paneling, lighting, and things of that nature. And you get the a, products in there. Put the cost of that to shame. Well, that's why I mean, yeah. you always said like when you say, okay, let's open up a store, and I tell you, Avi, listen, we can spend a million dollars on a beautiful store, and you know have showcases that will turn and and, and technology and the lighting and all that great stuff. Probably the biggest issue is that, okay, that's great, but then I need another $30 million worth of shit to put in there. That's where the expense really comes in, right? 
It's, and, and it's not just put it in there. It's keeping it there. Because I mean, if I took the 30 million that's back there yeah. and put it into a store in Miami, there's, I'm going to need another ship, two shipping guys over there to ship this stuff. I think the best idea is to open up a, like a buying office, which can also be a showroom, but almost like what you buy, you keep. You know, like you build up the, the inventory there by buying from the public at that location. You know, obviously, but you then, saw but something. Then, but, then, but then, again, A, you're limiting yourself to a one physical location. And yes. we both know that there's not a single store in the world that could ever amount to even a tenth or twentieth of the web traffic we get on our website. Of course. Right? Unless you, maybe there are a couple in Hong Kong. That's about it. There's just not, there's just not. It's, it's just a physical presence. You're just physically being there, you know, having like a, a brick and mortar. But, but at the same token, if you're talking about uh, Miami specifically, let's say, or Dallas or, or New York or whatever else, or even Hong Kong for that matter. Because we went to look for a store in Hong Kong, if you remember, until I found out how much real estate <laughs> is in Hong Kong. It's literally, you know, you know how like New York, they'll say, oh, you're not touching anything less than, yeah. you know, uh, 100,000 a square foot or uh, 10,000 a square foot. There it's like 10,000 a square inch. It's, it's, it's just insane, the pricing that's there. But you, you, you open up a store in places such as that that actually has foot traffic and is a destination location. If you think about... New York, Fifth Avenue is a destination location. Yeah. Madison is a destination location. Soho is a destination location. You think about uh, uh, LA, Rodeo Drive is a destination location, right? If you think about Miami, Design District is a destination location. And in Miami specifically, not only is it a destination uh, for locals, it's a destination yeah. for travelers that have come from all over the United States as well as overseas. And it's probably the biggest hub of overseas traffic from South America as well. I might as well be South America. Spanish is language number one in Miami. English is secondary. Absolutely. Back to Avi. Um, his story was really cool how he started, you know, being a young kid coming here. And like, I feel like a lot of people, like, I almost feel like Max had the same, a similar story. Like he was young, he was running around 47th Street, kind of got, you know, you get that energy and you get that motivation to do the same thing. Why didn't you like consider just doing 47th Street? Well, for, for one, geographically. I mean, you were already working in New York at the time. See, the, pro- the problem is, is that for three years of my life, I was doing two jobs, right? And also at the time, I was doing something that was a complete novelty. I was doing e-commerce via yeah. eBay, right? E-commerce didn't really exist that fully in terms of actual e-commerce websites, right? It was eBay first. Having a store was not even in the back of my head, right? Even, and plus, remember, the barrier to entry on 47th Street back then yeah. was ridiculous. You would have to pay... You know, for a booth the size of, you know, these two chairs and this mm-hmm. table here, you'd probably have to pay $150,000 key money alone. That's just to get the lease if you're lucky to find the window, yep. right? Uh, if you're going deeper into the exchanges, you're still paying key money. So realistically, obviously, I wouldn't get a window. I would, I would let's say, end up with a uh, basically a six-foot showcase with some shelving in the back, maybe 12 feet. If I'm lucky, that's a double booth in an exchange that would probably cost me upwards of hundred grand. And then I would physically have to be there. One of the things I hated at the moment was the fact that by that point, I was commuting to New York every day, two hours each way. I had a newborn child. I was newly married. You know, I wanted to have sex more often and see my son. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's it's one of those things. And moving to New York wasn't really an option because I tried that when I was working in corporate. And when I realized at the time I bought a condo, 1,100 square feet, two bedrooms, you know, one bathroom, nice, clean, modern, had a balcony, tennis courts outside in the development, village shires, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. When I looked, I said, you know what? The landing walking into my condo and going upstairs is about 100 square feet. So well, let me try to find some, something that's 1,000 square feet in New York City. Let's just say you could sit on the couch. You can turn on the TV. <laughs> and pee you, at the you same can make <laughs> eggs. And you can turn around and go to the bathroom. That's how small that fucking place was, right? Yeah. Like, it's so small, you come in, trip, and fall out the back. I think it, was, it, was, it was tiny. But I feel like just kind of being in that hub, like... So, for example, you had no WhatsApp groups. You had no Instagram back then. There was no Facebook, really. There wasn't a way to communicate with other people in the industry unless it's like face-to-face, which is why they all succeeded because they were around those people all day long, you know, trading. There were, there were runners, and obviously, and actually, they actually came back right now in a digital way. In 47th Street back then, you had these guys that I actually did business with, too, when I needed something. There were runners. They would come to the office every morning, wearing suit, tie, very well-dressed, usually. And they would walk the block for eight hours a day, seven hours a day, from 5th to 6th Avenue, from exchange to exchange to exchange to exchange. They were trusted, 
in the industry. People knew who they were, especially on 47th Street. And hi, how are you? What's going on? What are you looking for today? I'm looking for X. What do you got that's new? I got Y. How much is this? How much is that? They would leave that exchange, go to the next exchange. And eventually, by the time you go from exchange to exchange, you would match those up with, hey, I'm looking for this. Well, this just got it. And it would make a couple hundred dollars a watch, hundred dollars a watch, five hundred dollars a watch, thousand dollars a watch, whatever it might be, just by walking from booth to booth to booth to booth, right? And these guys, I know that uh, they've made at the time upwards of a thousand dollars a day awesome. just by walking yeah, around without having an office. Yeah. More successful is would take an office somewhere on the 12th floor, which would be, again, the size of like this setup mm-hmm. right here, just to have a place to sit and do some paperwork. But that was a tremendous thing. Right now, you're seeing that happening on a chat mm-hmm. because it's digital, because there's thousands of chats. People are all in them. Somebody's looking for something. They saw it in some other chat. They go to the guy. Do you have it? That guy didn't happen to see it. Because what happens on these chats? You get thousands of messages a day, and you miss them. So now you have guys doing that digitally, except this time it's a little bit more dangerous because there's a lot of fraud. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, you know, oh, how do I trust this guy to send me money and so on and so forth. It's a lot easier to have a name when you're walking around in person for 10 years. And any reason why, you, you know, you didn't want to get into diamonds or jewelry? So you didn't know anything about watches either. I mean, when you first well, started. I did. To be fair, I did know quite a fair share about watches. I was always into them. I, I, had, a, I had a fair idea in terms of the actual watches, right? Like, like you knew brands, you didn't know. I knew brands, I knew history, I knew complications, I knew all those things, but market, of course I didn't know. Yeah. I was not in that business. It's just like, it's, that goes with That's anything. That's what I mean. Like you didn't know what to price, what to pay, what to sell, you know, it was just kind of. It was, yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely not easy in the beginning, but you know, you learn experience. So, so diamonds and, and jewelry, I had zero clue about whatsoever. Uh, it seemed like a, a far away, a far-fetched thing for me at the time and I was just like yeah I don't know but then 10 years later I ended up meeting your father-in-law and his partner and we merged and yeah. that's now I know a fair share about that a lot of people like you know they say that the diamond industry is is interesting because nobody really knows how much a diamond is actually worth that's yeah. not true I mean you have Rappaport you know you have like standardized pricing it's very simple actually diamond the diamond the diamond business and the reason I didn't get into like strategically into diamonds is because the margin is very low on diamonds. You have to do a big volume, right? Uh, Made jewelry, that's when the margins are stupid and they're kind of blind. That's where people get a little confused. But when it comes to diamonds, it's a matter of looking at the wrap report. Here's the wrap price on this particular stone. It's X per carat based on the clarity and and how big it is, et cetera, et cetera. It's literally broken down by, you know, carat sizes and clarities and colors, right? And then knowing how much off is a good deal. That's where the tricky part comes in. For dealers, it's the same thing as for us. So I look, there's a market price wholesale on a GMT Pepsi. There's a wholesale market price. It's being able to follow the market that fluctuates, right? Yeah. And understanding, hey, this is a good deal. But a lot of that business still takes place in person, in, in these exchanges where they just sit face-to-face and like exchange stones. The, where, where the trick comes in is stones that are not certified. Right. Yeah. That's when you have to have really good knowledge. Right? So that's when you have to be able to pick up a stone and say, look, this is this clarity, this is this color, this is what I think this will come back from GIA as. And it gets a lot trickier when it comes to color stones, yep. color diamonds, and it gets even more trickier and the pool of people narrows down to not very many individuals worldwide when you get into uh, sapphires, rubies and emeralds and things like that. So Avi kind of went a different route, you know, like he went more of the influencer, you know, route, like with celebrities and doing that. Like, do you think, would you have preferred to do that? Like, there are difficulties that come with being a celebrity jeweler. And, uh, you know, and those are a deal. We deal with enough celebrities here as well. I just don't see it because of where we are, right? If this business was located smack in the middle of Miami, we would have those celebrity clients as well. But with celebrity clients comes difficulties, difficulties in terms of just dealing with them. Some, a lot of them are prima donnas, and yeah. they want you this, that, and the other. Yeah. He, a, a celebrity that walks into a store is not somebody that comes in and says, okay, I'll take that, and here's my credit card. Yeah. He puts it on, and he walks out. And then you have the job, the intricate job of reminding him that, you know, maybe you want to yeah. send me that wire, right? You're also dealing with items that are usually on the pricier side. You don't have as much availability, ability to diversify price-wise, right? Because majority of the celebrities, they buy things that are just fucking expensive, yeah. right? So now you're stuck holding an expensive inventory, which is equals exposure. 
And the expensive inventory usually turns out to be the hypest inventory, which is even more exposed to the risk of market shifting and you're losing an arm and a leg. The diamond market has now shifted, right? Like I've been talking to some diamond dealers and it, it, it took a significant drop across what? The bigger stuff. It goes back up just as quick, but it's still, let's say you're sitting on 20 million in diamonds and that just took a 30% shit, do the math. But if you're diversified and you have, you know, a few big ones, a few little ones, a few little medium ones, and so on and so forth, then you you kind of can cover yourself just like with watches. That's the bigger issue. As far as getting that celebrity clientele, like we've had plenty of celebrity clients here, and from sports players to to rock stars and so on and so forth, my approach has always been the same. With is I treat them the same as I would treat anybody else because a I feel like most of them want to be treated that way. Some of them don't. Some of them, some of them want you to run circles around them, which I personally wouldn't do. But some of them just want to be talked to like a normal human being. You know, they don't want to be people to be starstruck and, and like stuttering. And they, they just, I talk to them as I would talk to any other client, which is fair to my other clients. Just because I have a regular client that calls in for five thousand dollar Omega, why should he get any different treatment than some celebrity? Because celebrity can get you more exposure. Right. That's, Just like the that's, bad buddy. That's, that's from your perspective, right? So right. from your perspective, from a market perspective, yes, you want us to be smack in the middle of Miami and having all these people walk into a store, which brings him back to my point that an office is great, but a street level store where people can walk by, look in and say, oh shit, what's in here? I'd like to come in. We'll get a bad money to walk in or somebody else because they hang out there. Yeah. What do you think about Avi's you know, strategy of opening up stores? So I've been to the Miami store. Mm-hmm. It's funny too, because... Um, well, I was in Miami once and I'm like, hey, um, well, uh, Avi, you here? He's like, no, I'm not here, but I'm coming back. So that's funny because I'm coming back as well. Because I go back and forth with my family. And uh, I call him up one time. I'm going to design this. He's like, no, bro, I'm going to be there Sunday. I, go, I get there on Sunday. I got paced. I'm like, bro, where, where are you? He's like, I'm in the store. He's like, I'm on my way. He's like, where, in New York? I'm like, no, Miami. He's like, oh shit, I forgot to tell you, my flight got canceled. Sometime I'm coming back the next Monday, and I was actually leaving Monday. Whenever I walked in there, I know the guys that work for him. I took a look at the store, I took a look at his new watch that he made, uh, and uh, you know, obviously the, the store itself. Um, and so Avi now is in a design district, a little bit off the beaten path because it's the because they're expanding the design district block mm-hmm. by block, and they're going to be doing it for the next ten years because the area is hot. So right now he's not quite in the thick of things but he's still there. It's still a destination location rather than somebody's gonna walk by because there's really no other stores around him yet, but there's see other stores that are building. So it was a good move on his part. I'm fairly certain that because of where he is, it's much cheaper. And uh, again, you still need that traffic and Avi's getting the traffic that he's driving there via the same thing that we do. The same way we drive traffic through our website, he drives traffic to his stores. The issue is, is now today's day and age, it's hard to get somebody to get out of their house and specifically drive to go to that specific store when they can go on his website or pick up the phone and talk to one of his guys or talk on Instagram. Yeah. Is there anything that um, you kind of look up to Avi for? Like, not as far as like advice or anything. Balls. Like, yeah. Balls. Because look, I've seen this kid start. You know, when, when he started, we were already fairly large conglomerate. We were probably a company that was already doing $75 million a year when he kind of started. And he's got a lot of balls from starting to where he was, going all in, uh, you know, taking on loans to buy bigger stuff, to buy watches. You know, he's got a lot of balls. And he knew that if he would build it, they would eventually come. And he's had some tough times in the past. I know he did. I was there when he had those tough times. But guess what? At the end, he ended up on top. And right now, with the market taking a drop, He's also not having an easy time because remember what he sells. Of course. He sells the hype. He sells the yeah. most. But again, if a client, the type of client that comes in here and wants to buy a watch for us, and the only per- reason he's buying a watch for me because I'm maybe 3% cheaper or 5% cheaper, or he will go elsewhere because I am 5% more expensive, that's not the type of client that we try to attract because we're never going to be the most expensive. We're never going to be the cheapest guys yeah. on the block. I want my clients to re- recognize the value and the relationship. And this is what Ivy said really, really well. I befriend my customers, my customers become my friends, they become part of the family, we treat them as such, and we want the same treatment back. So if some guy, some flyby operation next door happens to have that Rolex for $500 cheaper at $18,500 and I'm selling it for $19, my my full expectations from a client is to say, hey, I'd rather buy it from Roman 
based on the value and the relationship that I have. Because cause some, today I may be a little bit more expensive, today I'm gonna be a little bit less expensive in the long run is going to equal out. That and was, I'm still gonna be here. Yeah, that was like the entire pivot that we had in like our marketing strategy. We weren't trying to sell products after a while. Like we started trying to sell products and we're like, why are we selling the same products everybody else is selling, trying to compete, you know, a dollar here, a dollar there. We gotta be selling ourselves, you know, the credibility, the trust, the personalities, yeah. you know, because and you know, that's what first of all, I think, I think it started with the education that we provided because your first idea was to put a camera in front of me and just have me talk about watches and show watches with the what's on my desk and the Q and A's. Then it translated into showing transparency, which is us doing the gray market episodes, which basically shows you what the hell's going on here, right? Sometimes more than we want, but what are you gonna do? Uh, and you, again, <clears throat> you educate your consumer to a point where they feel it would be stupid to buy elsewhere but you, regardless of price, within reason, right? And that's and that's really yeah. a motto that actually worked 20 years ago. It's a motto that works today. And then if you add relationship on top of that, if you add other value, because look, the way I look at, it doesn't cost us a little penny to create this content. Of course. The amount of content we put out on Instagram, TikTok, uh, you know, YouTube, two YouTube channels, or multiple YouTube channels, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It does cost us of a chunk of change, but I feel like at the same token, that's a value that I provide because entertainment is value, yeah. not just education. Of course. And, and then all the other stuff, you know, like the fact that, hey, there's something wrong with your watch, you, you have somewhere to call, yeah. you know, you have, some, you have somebody that's gonna pick up the phone and take care of it. You don't like something, no problem. Put it back in a box, send it back, no issues. Like it's, we just make it easy. And if on top of that, to go back to what you asked, if on top of that, you have that physical present, that flagship location, if you will, a boutique, like Kit just opened up a boutique in the design industry. It's amazing. How much business does Kit do online? A fuck ton. All of it, pretty but, much. You yeah. know, but that, those boutiques that he's got in New York, with the original yeah. one in New York, the one here in Miami that he's opened up, they go a long way because sometimes people want to come in, feel in touch, and talk to a human. And if that human happens to be the human that you've been watching behind a YouTube screen for quite a few years, yeah. it adds value. It's also something tangible, you know, like, the, the, the hype that it generates when you see pictures of people standing in line, like at the store when something's about to drop, you know, obviously the kids treats, you know, it's really cool. Like we should open up a store with like LB treats. Hmm. Um, about the whole YouTube thing, I actually wanted to ask you this a while ago. We just never, you know, sat down and talked about it. How, you know, how do you feel having like your work be public? Like everything that you do is visible to the public and allows people to she, she provide their- ask my wife about that. Yeah, provide their like feedback on it, like whether yeah, they're criticism. I had, a, I had a friend of mine, not gonna mention any names, he's short, pudgy, and has an Irish accent. Vladimir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what he told me? He's like, you know the one thing I learned? Don't read the comments on YouTube. Yeah. I answer all my DMs on Instagram. I still read the comments. And you know what, I learned to differentiate commas that are constructive criticism versus haters. And that was the easiest thing to do. But listen, you know how I felt about doing gray market. Mm -hmm. You came up with the idea of gray market. You even sent me a sizzler a year prior to, prior to us actually launching it. And the only reason it started to begin with, because I told you absolutely not. And then Anthony started doing his day in the life and you came to my office screaming at me and said the cameras are rolling Monday. And the next thing I know, Ian was in my face with a camera that Monday. So and if you remember, the first episode started with me looking at some funky pens. Mm -hmm. I was just like, that was just interesting. Right, and you literally came in, I told you so, now we're not first, but whatever. So how do I feel about it now? I'm used to it at this point, I'm numb to it, right? But still, I mean, look, yeah, you know, you try to ignore it, you know, but some things sting, you know, they just sting. You know, of like, course, you know, of course, you, I get my feeling hurts on a daily basis. You know, like, I talked to Adrian about this um, last week or the week before, we're like, bad example. You know, <laughs> no, <but> like, <laughs> just the fact that like, if you're a lawyer, if you're a doctor, you know, you're a teacher, you go to work, you do your job and you leave, that's it. Nobody knows what the hell you're doing in there. Here, you come to work and like, whether you succeed or you fail, you know, the world can see. Now, again, the world not is not only see, on. can also speculate. Correct. You know what I mean? Because as, as of late, like the comments on YouTube as of late, you guys are sinking ship. You're all going to be out of business of and this, that, and the other. I mean, I heard the same things in 2008, but not on YouTube. But it's, it's, you know, and, it, and these individuals that have no fucking idea what they're even talking about, right? They don't look at my books. And for the record, I actually just went over the books. Talking to some of my bigger clients, the guys that are in the world of finance that run big companies, because we have access to CEOs of major corporations. We have access to big hedge fund guys, millionaires, billionaires. And they were telling me that, look, if you can do this year minus 20% of what you did this year, consider yourself a big winner. 
Well, right now, if things go well over the next couple of months and over the next over the holiday season, we may actually hit the same numbers we hit last year and at a higher margin because remember when markets go down, we tend to buy cheaper. And my anticipation was last year was 129 million, I think we hit. My anticipation was to do somewhere around 112, 114, which was going to be amazing. But I think thanks to Adrian and us anticipating the slow market and getting out of some of the things and not being stubborn and actually losing money. Like people think that, oh my God, these guys are making money. This we're also losing money. But at the end of the day, we sold a watch two weeks ago. We sold, we lost $110,000 on that watch. Guess what? 150,000 came in. That money went back into the kitty, bought some other things, and we're going to make up for it. So there are, it's not like we're having a peachy time over the last nine months. We're reorganizing a few things. You know, we've had, uh, we'll let go some people. You know, we, we, we just, we're looking at things that are from a different lens and we're adjusting to what the market is. Yeah, I think that's only, I mean, my first reaction is like, I want to like, fuck you, you know. Of course. Um, <laughs> you know how many times I've written, uh, I have a better idea, how about you give a fuck yourself, and then I deleted it? <laughs> yeah, because like, ultimately, like, these people comment on shit, like, as if they're in our offices working with us, and they know what is going on, they know all, everything about the industry, like, I'm like, you don't, you're not in the industry. No, here's the one thing, here's the one thing that, that rubs me the wrong way sometimes, is that the, the audience makes you feel as if you owe them something right yeah. when uh, chris was uh, let go when nick was let go you know we were getting comments for like months and months and months yeah. you owe me an explanation you owe me this finally i wrote to one guy i'm like do you really think it's proper for me to put somebody's business out on the internet for everybody to hear for example nick moved on to do something else chris moved on to do something else it's not it's not, a, not, not it's, it's not right for me to get out this, you know, and I'm not saying that Nick or Chris got hired for one reason or the other, but let's say, hypothetically, I have employee X, and I fired him because he was stealing. Like, I caught him stealing a pair of earrings out of the vault. For the record, that's not what Nick and Chris did. <laughs> employee X, because, you know, there's going to be comments on Of course. This, right? But let's imagine that. So, do I put that out there to say this guy's a fucking thief? No. I mean, think about it. Just by HR, like, this person was, you know, terminated... Exactly. That's it. The, the person is no longer with the company. We left on great terms. Nick left on great. It was just you're like a public that. company. You might have to make like an announcement, but you don't get into details. You know exactly. Even if you make an announcement, yeah. he's no longer with the company. That's it. And guess what? But people feel like we owe them. I mean, you know why? And I know why, because I catch myself doing that as well, right? So I try to limit the amount of accounts I follow in, in social media spaces. Otherwise, you just get bogged down, right? So, like, if you look at my Instagram account, I follow everybody here, and then there's a few key figures. For example, Lewis Hamilton, right? I've been following Lewis Hamilton for a long time. Not only do I see him on Instagram, not only do I see him on other platforms, but I also watch him on TV. Mm-hmm. What that does, social media does, it gives you the impression of, you, you know that, you feel like you know the person, right? You feel like you know mm-hmm. them, right? Like, I, I followed The Rock for a while. You know, at some point, me and him were like best friends. You know what I mean? Hey, Rod, that's my guy. You know what I mean? I know what he's doing at the gym. I know what he's eating. I know what he's doing with his family. Yeah. What he's doing with... You're invested into their life. Exactly. Yeah. But I also came to realize that after so many years of being on social media and millions upon millions of eyes on us, the people on the other end feel the same way. So they feel entitled to know. So I don't really hold it against them, right? Because that's the mood. That's what social media is all about. You get invested into a character, whether you're watching Netflix, YouTube, or whatever else and you feel like you're owed because you're one of the followers and viewers. So there's really nothing wrong with that, but at some point you have to draw the line. I mean, access is, you know, a good and a bad thing. So it does give people access to, you know, again, anybody that they want, but you have to like, there's a certain, certain like threshold. Like, you know, I'm not gonna send you pictures of my babies and tell you what I'm doing right now. Do you know what I mean? Like, listen, you, you look at celebrities, you look at Hollywood, right? Uh, a lot of people follow celebrities on uh, Instagram, right? But I don't think, I think that YouTubers specifically, guys that like us, that are nowhere near as visible of that, like a rock or a Liam mm-hmm. Messi or, or, you know, whatever. I think we catch a lot more heat because they feel it's okay to talk shit about a Roman who is, I don't consider myself a celebrity, right? Being a celebrity on YouTube is like being rich a monopoly as far as I'm concerned, right? <laughs> Unless you're Mr. Beast. Then, yes. You know, and you're actually making stupid income off of that. But... It's, it's like, I feel like we're easier and softer target. Like you go into a Kim Kardashian thing, but then they get 
it's even worse for them. Yeah, they get uh, was it Star magazines and, and yeah. all these all these fake publications that you know say that she just you know had a three headed baby mm-hmm. by an alien or you know like yep. it just gets crazy or there's rumors. Dwight Howard is another one. Think about that. You know, it's yeah. his entire personal life just got you know spilled out everywhere. So they get the worst end of this thing. But I feel like we become easier targets on YouTube. I mean, I feel like something. It's something about our industry. Whether you know the how it looks that you're making so much money and you're dealing with these luxury goods that just generates people like it. I don't want to say you know it generates jealousy. It but, does. You know, of course it does. Of in a certain it way, it does. I mean, like. If you're people going see us to work, getting into yeah. fancy cars, people yeah. see us put $100,000 on our wrist, people hear numbers. Yeah. And the biggest problem with our industry is the numbers themselves. But what people don't realize is that when you're selling, let's say you sell a $100,000 watch and you made 10 grand, like, holy shit, that's a lot. But I put that in a percentage perspective. It's funny, like car dealers don't get the same hate. They don't. You know, they'll sell a $100,000 car and, you know, they'll put five to 10 grand in their pocket. And guess what? They'll make a lot more than 10% too. If they're, let's say a dealership, right? It's this, it's this, it's the concept of, you wouldn't talk shit about Louis Vuitton. Correct. Because their margins are, oh my God. When they sell it, they'll sell you, when they sell you, uh, well, I don't know, uh, a sweatshirt for $2,500 that costs them $25 to make, but yet they don't see it because people come back and they explain, oh, well, you know, this is a brand that's been around for well, forever. They've been building their own business for a long time. They created a name for themselves. You know, this is high-end popular goods. And I'm, and I'm sitting there listening to this and I'm like, um, uh, okay, and, oh, but my favorite stories, they have expenses, they're advertised everywhere. And I'm just like, oh, so I don't have 40 employees to pay. I don't pay money for advertising. I don't turn on my lights. I don't pay for gas. I don't pay for media, none of that stuff. So what I do doesn't really count because right. in a sense, I'm doing you the same thing. You bought a watch for 10, you sold it for 15, you just made five grand. How, how do you have the balls to do that? Exactly, <laughs> right? And people don't understand that it doesn't come yeah. down because the margins that we talk about, that's before expenses. Yeah. And to be fair, it costs a million dollars a month to run this fucking ship. Yeah. People don't know that. Or no, when I say it, they probably don't even believe it. They, they won't. You know what I mean? I've had an instance where I got into with one guy, and the only reason I was speaking with him is because I realized this is an intelligent individual on the other side, mm-hmm. where I was almost ready to send him my profit and loss statement for the month. Like, here, look. You know what I mean? Because he wanted to save an extra $1,000 on a $30,000 purchase, and I was explaining to him that, no, because I told him what my cost was. He's like, well, what's wrong with making 3% or 5%? I said, I have expenses. Right. And then my favorite is, is that, well, so what you're saying is I'm paying for your expenses. Yes. Yes. That's a business. The same way you do. That's called a business. The same way you do when you walk into Louis Vuitton and buy a T-shirt for six hundred dollars that costs them six dollars. You're paying for their billboards on on, you know, in Times Square. You're paying for a big store on Fifth Avenue. I can't imagine how much the rent on that fucking store is. You know what I mean? Like it's a five story store in the corner of 57th and 5th. So their rent is probably one hundred thousand dollars a square inch. But. But people, for some reason, when it comes down to smaller businesses, they don't grasp the same concept. They will go spend money in a big chain store, uh, be it a Target or a Kmart or whatever else. You know, yeah. uh, Walmart, 20 of the uh, Walmart, Walton family people are in the top 100 richest people mm-hmm. in the world, right? right? And, and they don't think of it. But the minute you come to a small business, it's like I saw a, a meme somewhere. You know, people will, what is it? People will spend money with somebody they don't know but when it comes to giving business to their friends they'll sit there and bargain and not want to get yeah. in that business they don't want to pay full price they don't you're want to my pay friend, full price you know give exactly. me a discount well it should be the opposite because yeah. you're my friend oh you have this watch list this, I have friends like this here locally that say they see something listed on the website for $15,000 they never they come in here with full blown intentions of paying me $15,000 I give them a discount obviously but they come in here with a full-blown intentions of saying, okay, it's 15 grand. He has a check. Yeah, it's respectable. Because they want to yeah. give me that business. They want me to make that money. But then I have people that will come in here that know me. So, well, you know me, so you, know, you got to hook me up. Yeah. What's my price? What's my price? What's, but why not come in here and say, hey, Roman, you work hard to build this thing. You know, I know your expenses are out there and so on and so forth. Funny I'm thing right. is, they would probably pay the 15000 to somebody else. That they don't Walmart. Know. That they don't know. Exactly. They'll go online and they'll yeah. shop with somebody they've never met in their entire life and pay them the same amount of money, but with you, they want to pay you less. Yeah. And that's, it's the same concept as the stuff you see on the internet, YouTube channels and, and social so, media and the heat that we catch. The lesson here is support your friends, support small business. Yeah. You know. And people say, well, you're not a small business. We actually we are. are. I mean, we actually 30 are. people. 
You know what I mean? It's like we are we are a small business in the sense that yeah, the numbers are really high. Why? Because we sell. It's just gross. It's not you know they're not real. Like these are not real numbers. Like yeah, it's they're like in the ether. You know, yeah. 150 million, 200 million, great. You know, 30 people. I was, looking at, the, I was looking at the numbers from the antique show. Uh, I set the over under two million dollars, right? And it sounds great on YouTube. You know, over under two million. I think we're actually going to hit it because. Towards the end of the day, I was, you know, it's been two days, we're halfway through, and I was, you know, we're about, at about a million already, so, and people are going to hear, oh, we went to the, you went to the uh, New York show, and you did two million dollars in business, I said, let me break that down for you, two million dollars in the New York show, cost of the show, cost of shipping your goods, so the cost of the show, think about this, it's travel to New York, it's employees out of the office, it's paying for the space, then it's paying for the showcases to a different company, it's paying for lighting to another different company. Then you're paying Malka to come pick up your goods, which is gonna cost you, because you have a lot of inventory, it's gonna cost you upwards of 10 grand. By the time, you, by the time I am in New York, I'm minus $50,000 before the show even starts, right? And let's even assume we did a million dollars, let's make it easy, at a, at a 12% margin, that's $120,000 that we stand to make if we hit the 12% margin, right? which I don't think we did. But with that said, now take away $50,000, take away staff that's going back and forth. I got photographers, videographers, social media people, salespeople. Mm -hmm. uh, our head of inventory, Natalie, went there. It all costs money. So when we end up, God willing, we end up doing that $2 million, and let's say we do make $250,000, you can subtract 100 grand right there and there. Not to mention that it becomes a seven-day work week for majority yeah. of the people here. So it's not all glitz and glamour as you see it. It's true. Those are the numbers, but look at them with a grain of salt. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm are you satisfied? Done. Yeah. Can I go back to work now? I got it all. All right. Um, anything you want to talk about? I mean, I feel like, I feel like, you know, it has to hurt talking this much. Uh, for me? Yeah. <laughs> That's a wrong question to ask me because I will talk for another four hours. I mean, you know that. So I'm with, let's wrap it up here. I got some more stuff to do. I got to go back to New York this weekend for the trade show anyway. So uh, we'll wrap it up here, guys. Thanks for tuning in and uh, like, comment, share, subscribe. We're going to try to keep this podcast going. Uh, it's just another avenue for you guys to listen in, whether you're watching or listening on Spotify, Apple, and all those everywhere. I don't even know. How, how many, what are the major uh, podcast platforms that people actually listen uh, on? Apple, Spotify. Is that, is that it? Or is, no, there's more smaller ones, but those are the biggest ones. Google is like blah. So check us out, Spotify and Apple. Thank you. Have a good one. Have a good one. Good day. Uh,